are you, by the way? Stockholm. Stockholm. I thought yeah. it was. Fantastic. Well, your experiment seems to have worked, according to the... There's an article in The Spectator, in fact, just now. I mean, it's very debatable. It will always be heavily debated. But um, in order to reduce the transmission rate, you don't have to get rid of all human interaction. You have to get rid of the worst forms of it. And I... I think you're probably right, although it was risky. In our last episode, intensive care consultant Rich Breeze gave us a candid report from the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we couldn't stay clear of the subject with this week's guest either, even though that wasn't originally why we asked him on the show. But first things first. Welcome to What Does Good Look Like? The podcast that brings you healthy care experts with unique insights into what good looks like and what you can do to get there. I'm Anna, and I'm co-hosting this podcast together with Will. This week, we meet Ogilvy Vice Chairman, TED Talk Superstar, and self-acclaimed behavioural science groupie, Rory Sutherland. If you haven't heard him talk, you're in for a treat. And if you have, I'm assuming you decided to tune in anyway, because you know you won't get disappointed. Medical science is making great progress in determining what constitutes a healthy lifestyle, but it hasn't been as successful in helping us with how to change our behavior. Understanding the benefits of a healthy life and to actually practicing it can be two very different things. And this is where behavioral science come in. My argument about behavioral science is not a science where you go, this is what the science tells us, therefore we do X. The fact that you can't achieve a physicist or an engineer's confidence, you know, that you're not like a bridge builder where you can go, you know, the structural stresses of this bridge, before we build it, I can confidently say, we'll cope with crosswinds up to force 11 or whatever, okay. No, no, you know, in behavioral science, I, I don't think you can do that because context has such a bearing on how humans behave. You know, you don't have a bridge which is in a bad mood. Yeah, normally I cope with a with a force to ten gale, but I'm really feeling pretty pissy at the moment, so I think I'm going to collapse. Okay, bridges don't have that kind of contextual emotional frame to their behaviour, whereas people do. Rory started his career as a copywriter at advertising, marketing, and PR agency Ogilvy, and has since moved on to become vice chairman of Ogilvy UK and the founder of its behavioural science practice. He's also former president of the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising, presents series for BBC Radio 4, and has written two books, The Wikiman and Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas Which Don't Make Sense. The latter is a book explaining why being irrational is actually, well, rational. If you've been following the What Does Good Look Like podcast, you know that the challenges of changing human behaviour has been brought up by many of our healthy care experts. We've invited Rory as a guest because we want to learn more about human behaviour from a discipline with huge success in this regard, marketing. We'll be covering our conversation with Rory in two episodes. In this first one, we'll gain a better understanding of human behaviour in general and how Rory and his marketing colleagues use this information to affect people's behaviour. In the second episode, we'll discuss more specifically what medicine can learn from marketing and how we can use these learnings to drive healthy care behaviours. It's great to have you. I just want to say congrats on your book. We've got it, Alchemy. Fabulous. We both very much enjoyed it. Uh, and I think one way to set this up is that you make the point in the book and elsewhere that psychology is technology, and we seem to forget that quite often. Uh, and I was wondering whether or not you could kind of expand on what you mean 
with that? Um, I mean, the perfect example of psychology being technology uh, is probably the television. Uh, the extraordinary thing with the television, which you're, or the screen for that matter, which you're looking at right now, is that it only produces three colours and yet your brain effectively thinks it produces the whole spectrum. And what's interesting about that, very simply, is that television species specific. Uh, the three colors are designed, well chosen very specifically, to match the three colors to which human vision is sensitized. And that's uh, red, green, and blue in this case. And therefore your TV is optimized for higher primates. The point is that, um, if you define technology as something which essentially affects human behavior in some shape or form, I mean, you can invent things, which, you know, I think that's a very loose definition of technology, which is simply something new, which doesn't change the way we do things. That's merely an invention. Innovation requires some form of willing human adoption of some kind. Yeah. And the way you improve something could be exclusively through you know some superior technological means but there's almost always a psychological element to it and in many many cases what we think of i think as a technological innovation is mostly psychology so let's just take i mean uber would be an example red bull would be another okay what's really interesting about both those things um, is that the adoption of those things, the very ready adoption, their extraordinary commercial success, isn't really exclusively about the absolutely narrow functional role of the product. And the example I was giving Uber is that where it's ingenious, the map in Uber, which shows your car approaching, you do have it in Stockholm, don't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But what's ingenious about it and what's fantastic about it is simply the fact that uh, nearly everybody would try and be objective and they'd say what's really important objectively is how quickly the car arrives and i'd say no 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 no. actually the psychological innovation there is what matters is your degree of uncertainty about the arrival of the car that's what makes waiting for a car stressful you know whether it's four minutes or eight is a secondary factor what really affects human mood and emotion and therefore behavior is the fact that if you can look up and see the car essentially the whole emotional experience of waiting for something has changed first of all you're not suspecting the person's lying about when it's going to arrive or indeed the fact that it's been booked uh, you aren't staring out of the window every 30 seconds going is it here yet instead you go oh look he's over there he's stuck at those traffic lights i'll make myself a cup of tea the point is that people deploy ideas on the assumption that the human both emotional uh, reaction to things and indeed the human perception of things is akin to a sort of scientific sensor. In other words, it's based on SI units or SI derived units. And what we care about is time and distance and speed and so on. And of course, this would be fantastic had we evolved that kind of perception and that kind of emotional apparatus, but we haven't, uh, you know, and so, you know, the great news is when you design a television, you don't have to produce every single color because the brain or the, the eye is only sensitized to three. And we produce the entire spectrum in our heads. And what that means, I think, is using better psychology and better epistemology 
we can design things around what humans really care about. You know, what we respond to emotionally and therefore what drives our behavior is things like meaning and story and context-driven significance. Yeah. Okay. It, it isn't the things that a physicist would seek to measure. And so in our attempts to become more objective, we arguably end up optimizing or measuring things which to human beings aren't actually very important. So what would be interesting to know as well is, so at Ogilvy, when you work as a team and you help a client out, how do you actually start? How do you, how do you package these ideas? Uh, one of the things I always say as a bit of a methodology is there are, two, there are two things you can do. You can either solve a problem which is known now, quite often, marketing doesn't have that luxury. In fact, what you're doing is you're, in many ways, solving a problem you don't yet know you have. And I'm a big recommender of the book by Peter Thiel called Zero to One, because yeah. it's very interesting to, to read the work of a tech expert who's highly sympathetic to marketing and basically gets it. As he puts it, you have to take it seriously because it works. It works on nerds and it works on you. And so quite often, as he says of the marketer, you know, the engineer does at least know exactly what the job is he's required to do. Whereas in the case of the marketer, you often start off without complete information as to what success looks like. And so the approach I was adopt, first of all, I don't really believe in a methodology, but I believe in checklists. Okay. So the Atal Gawande fans among your, mem uh, your medical uh, audience yeah. uh, will... I mean, the point about that is a methodology is what you want if you want to produce pretty much the same thing repeatedly. In this case, we, it, it's a process both of discovery and diagnosis as well as problem solving. So I'm massively in favor of checklists because they prevent you overlooking anything. I'm not necessarily a huge fan of saying follow this pro procedure and all will be good. Um, because I've never seen a pro, you know, I've never seen a process which captures every possibility. Yeah. What I would say is the way I always do it is by a kind of negative approach, which is if there is a known problem, it's probably because someone's assuming something that's wrong. So if you can find out what it is that people assume that's wrong, then nine times out of 10, if you can correct the wrong assumption, or the lazy assumption, or what I call the logical assumption, uh, then you know you stand a very good chance of solving the problem. If you find, and I often call this the science of knowing what economists are wrong about, <laughs> because the default mode of institutional decision making is always, when in doubt, pretend humans are conventionally economically rational and that mainstream economics is true. Mm. And. Um, uh, the process I always adopt is one of basically going, are you sure? In other words, if I look at everything around this product or service, it probably assumes a lot of things from mainstream conventional economic theory and very narrow theories of what rational economic human behavior might be. And some of those assumptions aren't safe. So, I mean, to give an example, if you go to an airline website, this um, is still very common. And it asks you at the very beginning, what class of travel do you want? Okay. And you answer economy, premium economy, business, or first. And then you, let's say you put in premium economy and it gives you the price of the ticket in premium economy, right? That's making an assumption, very, very uh, dangerous assumption. 
which is a very expensive assumption, as it turned out, which is that people basically know what they want. In other words, it's, it's assuming perfect information. Mm. Now, my argument would be this is a dumb assumption because my readiness to pay for premium economy depends on what the economy price is. Yeah. And in fact, if I don't know the economy price, I can't really happily pay for a premium economy ticket if I don't know what the relative difference is. Now, an economist would assume that if I was, ha- you know, that, you know, in a sense, I'm never a very dumb economist, but a lot of decisions are made as though, you know, uh, you know, by people who know economics a bit. I would assume that, you know, you knew what you wanted, how much you were prepared to pay for it. Now, what you're prepared to pay for something depends on available alternatives. And therefore, if you don't show the economy price, no one will choose premium economy. But what you do discover is actually a surprisingly large number of people, of extra additional people, will pay for premium economy if you show them both prices. Marketing, uh, in general, has a role which is much, much, much more important than most organizations realize, particularly scientific, engineering, B2B organizations, which is to... Imagine the experience of a business through a customer's own eyes. Very likely, if you don't have any marketing person on your board or reasonably senior in your company, you will go ahead making decisions from a company's eye view, which doesn't capture the very different and very complementary consumer's eye view. And so you'll say, right, we'll subsidize this and we'll subsidize that and we'll reduce the price of this. And therefore, um, economically, our business will be more attractive. Now, the, v- the first vital thing is, before we even talk about things like behavioral science and epistemology, is simply to say, let's look at this experience through the eyes of an individual or repeat customer and understand how it feels to undergo this experience. And a classic example of someone not noticing that, I always joked about this, is our subsidies for electric cars in the UK. They subsidise the purchase of a car, and they subsidise installing an electric um, charging point at home. Hmm. Now, you can't get the electric charging point subsidy until you prove you own an electric car. But a lot of people wouldn't be happy to get an electric car until they knew they could install the charging point. Yeah. So if you don't look at the experience, you subsidize both those things without realizing that, hold on a second, if you make it mandatory to have an electric car, I would argue, to be absolutely honest, okay, if I were in charge of that scheme, I'd actually say to them, uh, look, mate, um, to be absolutely honest, you don't need to subsidize the electric car as much as you do. What you do need to subsidize is the charging point because once I've got a charging point, my next car is probably going to be an electric car on the grounds that if I've spent £200 getting an electric 7-kilowatt charger installed in my home, I'm going to feel a bit of a dickhead if I go out and buy a diesel, aren't I? So from a path-dependent point of view, I would have changed that completely and I would have said it's also ridiculous in the sense to demand someone owns the car before they get the charger because many, many people won't be prepared to take the risk of buying an electric car until they're confident that the wall of their garage and their home electricity supply can support the seven kilowatt thing. You you certainly get the feeling listening to you that we constantly underestimate the importance of psychology and, and emotional response. And I think you've often talked about the concept of the economic man, this assumption that humans act rationally, and that's what we base our models on. 
Yes. If you talk to if you talk to my friend Ole Peters at the London Mathematical Laboratory, he also says it's not only wrong in terms of human evolutionary psychology; it's even mathematically wrong. The idea of what you might call maximizing expected utility is bad maths because actually it assumes ergodicity, which is a concept which it, it uh, interview Ole to talk about this because it'd be a very very interesting area. But the number of times where I think we assume um, because economics is pretend physics, okay? It should be, as Robert Trevor says, it should be rooted in psychology. Mm. Because patently, if it is about how people respond to incentives and, and other stimuli, um, if it seeks to be a social science, it should, be, it should acknowledge, for example, limitations and strengths of human perception. But at the very least, it should get the maths right, and it doesn't even do that. Um, so I'll give you a perfect example of this. And this, by the way, is an interesting one, I think, in terms of coronavirus. If you want to uh, reduce train overcrowding, uh, most models, they assume that overcrowding is a person standing on a train. And therefore, it doesn't distinguish between 100 people who have to stand 10% of the time contribute to overcrowding as much as 10 people who have to stand 100% of the time. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. They'll both be a person standing on a train, 100 people 10% of the time, 10 people 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. And a standard view would view those things as indistinguishable because for the purposes of the mathematical model, you've defined overcrowding as an overcrowding event. But humans care about the distinction very much because when I used the un London Underground, I probably ended up standing 10% of the time. I didn't get angry about it. It didn't put me off using the Underground. But if you've bought a season ticket for a train commute into town and you never get a seat, that actually makes you feel completely cheated and you're significantly angry about it. That and so the fact that none of the attempts to solve, to reduce overcrowding made that distinction. I mean, I'll give you a lo lovely case in point, okay, about this, which is, this is Sweden versus the UK. What I think you can, now, okay, look at those models of, um, uh, of epidemiology, which have this thing called R0, right? Yeah. Now, that, that assumes R0 for the population, which is an average, right? Now, I agree, if R0 is greater than one, you've got a problem on your hands, right? But the only problem with only knowing R0 for the whole population, not for individual people and events, is that the only possible thing you can do is lockdown, right? Is complete lockdown. Now, you know, knowing this requires far more granular data. You might be able to get R0 at less than one simply by banning the most extreme behaviours and doing massive tracing over very extreme events. We don't yet know whether some people are super spreaders, whether they're kind of asymptomatic typhoid Marys. Okay, what does seem clear is that you should ban skiing holidays, which is, by the way, something I believed before there was even... A, um, <laughs> uh, I, always, I always say to my staff, if you're going on a skiing holiday, you're not really tired enough to need a holiday, are you? Um, uh, you know, sitting on the beach, doing nothing, I get that, right? But, um, but the, point, the point I make is that certain things, skiing holidays, mass crowd events, mass indoor events like conferences, almost certainly contribute disproportionately to kicking the average R0 above one. Yeah. And therefore, what should be possible when you release lockdown is to disaggregate this data. And there could be a whole load of fat tail stuff 
which is, you know, um, as I said, ski, ski resorts have always been terrible, by the way, for sexually transmitted diseases. Yeah. So um, uh, because skiing is fundamentally immoral. Uh, in my view and um so so actually getting rid of certain behaviors i mean undoubtedly you know um public transportation when it's very dense and and heavily yeah. overused looks as though it's a bit of a disaster particularly if it's below ground possibly we don't know okay but there is something about making people travel in tunnels which ain't you know ain't gonna be great you know, to an extent being in any kind of mass underground transit system is a bit like being in a giant vacuum cleaner because when the trains roll in and out, of course, it creates quite a lot of suction. Yeah. Mm. So um, we, the other thing we don't know, by the way, and which no one seems to be asking, is, is there a path dependency of the illness, depending on the, the initial dose with which you're affected, infected of the virus? But, I mean, it, it seems weird that people are trying to make decisions scientifically without adequate information. And of course, this is one of the reasons why human psychology is so strange. 90% of problems you face in reality, you don't have complete uh, information. And the information you do have may not be in a form which is mathematically expressible in, as part of some larger model. What does seem a bit worrying to me about science is that when science is presented with necessary decisions where of necessity you don't have perfect information, a lot of people seem to to me to go completely wacko mm. because they're saying things like there's no evidence that masks help. And my, my question to this is what harm is it going to do? The whole business of the, the evidence base strikes me as a bit weird because at some level, if you're not careful, you're actually banning the use of common sense. Well, I mean, there was a criticism this morning in the papers, wasn't there, around the UK saying um, that they're basing their policy on the scientific evidence. And one a scientist from, I think, Aberdeen University was saying, well, none of the scientists are all arguing, so it's not really based on no. evidence. It's based on a view of what... Uh, the, the other thing that makes it difficult, and I'm going to be, very, you know, I'm going to be sympathetic to anyone in behavioural science here, is that the opposite of a good idea is also a good idea. And you could talk about the problems of the lockdown involving something which I'd never heard of before it was quoted, which is I think called behavioral fatigue or something. Never heard the phrase before, okay? Now, I'm a classicist, I'm not a behavioral scientist, but I'm a behavioral science groupie. And generally, I would argue that actually we have an opposite problem, which is if you think about someone who spends days in isolation, is going to be a bit reluctant to go out and behave like an idiot because then what you do is you you go back into another 10 days of worry of did i catch it mm. and you you arguably um uh, you know by dint of practicing self-isolation arguably i would say there's a degree of behavioral reinforcement which is what you know i've isolated myself for 10 days i'd be pretty silly after 10 days going out just for the hell of having a drink with a friend and blowing all the good work now, my argument about behavioural science is not a science where you go, this is what the science tells us, therefore we do X. It's really a science about what we don't know. Now, that's still a science, okay? Being able to say, you probably assume X, but X may not be true, so we need to experiment with that. That's very good science. That's not 
The fact that you can't achieve a physicist's or an engineer's confidence, you know, that you're not like a bridge builder where you can go, you know, the structural stresses of this bridge, before we build it, I can confidently say, we'll cope with crosswinds up to force 11 or whatever, okay. No, no, you know, in behavioral science, I, I don't think you can do that because context has such a bearing on how humans behave. You know, you don't have a bridge which is in a bad mood. Right. Okay. So yeah, normally I cope with a with a force ten gale, but I'm really feeling pretty pissy at the moment. So I think I'm going to collapse. Okay. Bridges don't have that kind of contextual emotional frame to their behaviour, whereas people do. And so you know, you know, one thing it's you know there will be a group of people who will suffer behavioural fatigue, and that's probably true. You know, it may be young people. It may be people who are you know. Um, actually stuck at home with people they don't like very much. Um, you know, there are all sorts of circumstances where behavioral fatigue is true, but the opposite may also be true. I, I don't know about you. I, I, did you. Did you practice a degree of voluntary self-isolation in Sweden before the, I mean? Yes. Yeah. So you were avoiding cinemas and bars before it became mandatory to? Yeah. yeah. So I'd just been on a trip to Madrid two days before <laughs> it closed down. And I came back very worried and not very well. So, you know, immediately isolated. And then we were following isolation for three or Yeah, and even before that, we kind of started working more from home. And, um, mm. yeah, we were definitely... Not everyone... Uh, it's because everybody gave the British a hard time about how late they introduced the ban. But in the week before the ban, um, the lockdown, London was a partial ghost town i mean the the station car parks where i live outside london were half empty every day yeah. so a huge number of people who could work from home were doing so mm. and by the way i mean this is this is in some ways the long-term benefit we can derive from this is if it significantly changes working patterns because a people have to be competent enough at using video conferencing software so that that problem that used to happen, which is in any meeting of seven people, there was always one person who cocked it up or didn't know how to do it or who really, really didn't like it. So that's one thing we've solved. The second thing is a large number of people have been exposed to, for the first time, the extraordinary benefits which accrue when you work remotely, not least of which is you gain about a day a week. It's a bit of a coordination problem in that companies need to say, hey, look, Monday and Friday tend to be video heavy and remote heavy, Tuesday to Thursday tend to be face-to-face -face heavy, because the, the full benefits only emerge when everybody does the same thing to the similar level of competence mm. um, at a similar time. But I mean, I would say a company who's been through this, who doesn't say at the very least, we're going to have a work from home day, um, is missing an opportunity. I saw a great interview that you did, actually. I think it was Owl. No, the Owl is a fascinating thing, actually. I'll, I'll happily plug the meeting Owl. It's from owllabs.com if you go to the website. This is, again, a psychological innovation. Most video conferencing software in an office setting forces everybody to sit looking in the same direction towards the camera, which then anthropologically completely disrupts the structure of the meeting because humans meet in some kind of circle you know it might have been around a campfire first or a dead antelope okay now it's around a table which is a kind of you know a stand-in for a, a fire if you like and the owl by having a 360 degree camera that sits on its head 
and an array of microphones. You plonk the owl in the middle of the table. The meeting takes place physically, just as it would have done for a million years. And then the people sitting in, the camera automatically zooms in on whoever's speaking. That's what. That's exactly the reason I love the owl so much. And I'm always basically. In, fa in fairness, I want to disclose an interest here because I was such a massive advocate and uh, such an amazing um, uh, influencer in always promoting this. They did send me a free meeting owl pro. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that I'm otherwise unpaid, but um, that's a perfect case of psychological innovation because it understands the human psychology and the you know, the deep forces at work and then creates a product that works with the grain of those natural instincts yeah. rather than standard video conferencing where everybody's sitting as if they're on a bus, okay, which is exactly the case of, of technology working against the grain. It forces people to adopt an unnatural behaviour in order to uh, use it. And with that, we're back to where we started. The meeting owl is a great example of the phrase technology is psychology. The best innovations are built from natural human behaviour, not against it. In the next episode with Rory, we'll discover why general health advice isn't working, the go-to social media for behavioural science, and why they put pasta at the bottom of pre-made salads. This season we're releasing a new episode every other Tuesday. So if you haven't already done so, make sure that you subscribe to the What Does Good Look Like podcast so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. If you have any questions, comments or feedback on the topics we've discussed, we'd love for you to get in touch. You can reach us directly by email, podcast at meliohealth.com or if you make a post on social media, please tag us using hashtag WDGLL. And if you do like our podcast, please help spread the word. You can share episodes with friends and family directly from your podcast app or leave a rating or review to help even more people find us. Join us in discovering what good looks like so that you and your loved ones can stay younger for longer.